Alright, hello and welcome back to the Wayward Podcast. Where there is a word, there is a way. I hope you are having a wonderful day. I hope that the sun is shining down on you. I hope it's not too cold. I hope there's not too much to shovel where you're at. I hope that you are experiencing an abundance of hope in this season. I hope that hope is bringing you to life and invigorating you or reinvigorating you, refreshing you in ways that are just bringing you joy, a sense of peace and love and togetherness with those you love and with those that you want to connect to. We are going forward today on our Advent series, and if you haven't been able to listen to the previous episodes, I really strongly urge you to check those out. I would appreciate it. In our last episode, we finally focused on the specific shape and substance of the hope that God was bringing into the world. And spoiler alert, the specific substance of the hope, of, of that hope that God was shaping and bringing into the world was a king and his kingdom. The angel Gabriel, who had also appeared to Zechariah and told him that his that he and his wife were going to have a son. Later, that angel appeared to a young woman named Mary and told her that she would have a son, and that son would be the king Israel had been waiting for, and that he would grow up and usher in the reality of God's kingdom rule on earth. So, This was a magnificent word of good news the angel had given to Mary. Now, usually when this passage gets preached, what does the conversation usually turn to at this point, after the angel departs? In my experience, uh, the focus often turns to questions and concerns about how Mary might be treated from now on. Questions about her virgin pregnancy, about... Joseph's reaction, her parents' reaction, the town's reaction. Now, those questions, they do factor into the Gospel of Matthew's version of the story. But here in Luke's telling, the focus is elsewhere. Because Mary's focus is elsewhere. At the end of the angel's message in verse 36, Gabriel had told Mary that Even her older cousin was miraculously six months pregnant with a son. And after the angel departs, the story picks up in Luke chapter 1, verse 39. And in verse 39, it says that in those days, Mary set out and went with haste to a Judean town in the hill country. Now, based on how this text tells the story, we don't see or pick up on any concern from Mary about what Joseph would think, what her parents would think, what the town would think. Based on how the text tells the story, it appears that Mary is mostly concerned with going to be with her cousin Elizabeth. Why? Family reunion, perhaps? 
Uh, not really. Probably not holiday travel either. No, this is about being where God's hope and blessedness can be shared. Mary has just received news about something extraordinary that God will do in her while being informed of something extraordinary God has already been doing in her relative. And when God is doing something extraordinary in you, you want to share it with someone who will appreciate it. And who better to appreciate such an extraordinary event than a relative who is experiencing the same thing, right? So let's pause here for a second. The last time that we encountered Elizabeth in this story was back in verse 24, uh, which said that after those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she remained in seclusion. And she said in verse 25, This is what the Lord has done for me in this time, when he looked favorably on me and took away the disgrace I have endured among my people. I imagine that she remained in seclusion for a number of reasons. One, privacy. I'm not married. I'm not a father. But I imagine that when you learn that you are having a child after so much time has passed, it is so stunning that you want to keep it to yourself for a while. You want to process it. You don't want to let anybody in on it just yet. Because, you know, people... They feel entitled to things that are made public. I imagine that she just wanted to let the wonder of it all well up within her. And I also imagine that Elizabeth and Zachariah have possibly been through this before. With it not ending the way that they had hoped. And giving Elizabeth's older age, I imagine that she didn't want to do anything that may endanger the child, like with overwork and exhaustion, you know? Now keep the situation as I read in mind. In verse 39, in those days, Mary set out and went with haste to a Judean town in the hill country, where she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the child leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why has this happened to me that the mother of my Lord comes to me? For as soon as I heard the sound of your greeting, the child in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her by the Lord. Elizabeth is at her home. She's not exerting herself. She's keeping herself secluded uh, from neighbors. I don't know what she was thinking, but I imagine she was just keeping calm, not wanting to do anything that interfered with or ruined this gift. And maybe she had been so careful that she had somehow withheld her own excitement or kept herself from getting too excited, waiting to see how this was all going to turn out. Maybe, in some sense, it hadn't yet felt like it was real. When suddenly a familiar face 
enters the house, and at the voice of her greeting, the child in her body suddenly leaps excitedly. Now, I don't know what that feels like. Maybe shocking, maybe a little painful. But greater still, I imagine it's an experience that awakens the senses vibrantly and reinforces the fact that there is life going on within you. It was as if a reservoir of joy had been simmering beneath, and at Mary's greeting, it just erupted into an exclamation of joy and exultation, gratitude, honor, and celebration. And so overflowing is her spirit-shaped joy that it spills into Mary, who begins to explode into her own expression of joy and celebration. And in verse 46, it says, Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked with favor on the lowly state of his servant. Surely, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is His name. Indeed, His mercy is for those who fear Him. From generation to generation, He has shown strength with His arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He has come to the aid of his child Israel in remembrance of his mercy, according to the promise he made to our ancestors, to Abraham and to his descendants forever. A simple way to look at Mary's Magnificat here is that she is retelling what the angel Gabriel had already told her. She is retelling the angel's gospel narrative with some of the imagery and phrasing that we might see in Old Testament poetry of psalms and prophecies. Mary's imagination is ignited with what God is doing, and she is just enraptured in the worshipful wonder at how the favor God has shown her is instrumental in bringing God's favor back to her people, Israel. So as both Elizabeth and Mary reunite, they are both exultant, and caught up in the Spirit's spontaneous joy. And in verse 56, it says, Mary remained with her about three months, and then returned to her home. Now let's pause here a second. I believe the Advent season provides us with the great story of hope. But I also recognize that hope can be a very difficult thing. 
especially during this season. And the reasons vary. I know that the loss of a loved one can accentuate grief during this season. I know that loneliness can feel extra heavy during this season. I also think there's something about this season that can tend to excavate long buried hurts, ignored or unhealed wounds, or unresolved disputes and tensions. I imagine there is something about all that which can make us grieve both for the life that we felt should have happened and the life that did happen. So yes, hope is hard to detect and hope is hard to feel. And yet, these Advent stories are about hope being stirred up in times that seem hopeless. So how does this story address those needs? How does this story teach us to participate in the hope that God is shaping? One possibility this story so far has shown us is that participating in hope requires a place. A place is important because it ties us to the contexts of life. The place we come from, the cultures and customs of that place, the language and the stories of that place, the weather of that place, the industries of that place, the food and clothing of that place. We are shaped by and give shape to the contexts of place. And most importantly, God operates through time and place. This story started with Mary setting out to a Judean town in the hill country. The hill country means more than a geographical location or destination. Zechariah has been silent for months, and Elizabeth has secluded herself for those months in the hill country. And the hill country is perfect for quiet seclusion. The hill country is isolated and quiet, slow, natural, yet unpredictable and wild. The hill country is a place that reminds us we are not in charge. It is a place that removes our claws from the illusion of control and forces us to acknowledge that we are a small part of something much bigger. That's when the hill country fosters contemplation. Igniting the imagination, it becomes a place where hope can be planted, take root, and grow with anticipation into something wondrously alive with all of God's worth and wonder. Now, thankfully, God doesn't need just the hill country to work, but God does need to work through the context of place. Hope needs a place that gives it space to be nurtured in serenity. 
So if you recognize that in this season that you need, if you recognize that you are in need of hope this season, I encourage you to seek out a specific place where that hope could be found and nurtured. But it's about more than just place. So that's why a second possibility that this story shows us is that participating in hope requires people. Human beings were made for community. When we isolate ourselves away from community, we grow sick in a variety of ways. Sick in body, sick in mind, sick in behavior, sick in self-centeredness. Hope requires people, specifically people who are able to stir up hope in us and participate with us in that hope. Knowing her own unique situation and knowing only Elizabeth could relate, Mary got herself to the hill country to visit, support, and rejoice with her relative. And as we saw, they were a profound blessing to each other. It is possible to possess hope individually, but ultimately, hope has to be shared in order to be richly experienced. Hope has to be shared in community in order to be participated in, pondered, recognized, enjoyed, and preserved. So if you recognize that you are in need of hope this season, I encourage you to seek out hopeful communities in order that you can share in with the hope that they have. A third possibility that this story shows us is that participating in hope requires perspective. When both Elizabeth and Mary came together, they both experienced the joy of the Spirit. Elizabeth experienced life inside her. Mary gave a poetic recitation of the good news she had heard. And both of them experienced and exalted in the Spirit's perspective. When we're battling hopelessness, one of the factors at work there is a hopeless perspective, where all we see are the dark factors, memories of brokenness, memories of loss, abuse, shame. It's a perspective colored in darkness. But hope rooted in the good news brings a perspective rooted in light. Both Mary and Elizabeth were operating from that perspective, and it was yielding a joy that invites us all to partake. So if you are in need of hope this season, I again encourage you to immerse yourself into the gospel stories we read in scripture and don't rush it. Sit with them. Take your time. Take occasional pauses for reflection 
And I promise you, a perspective of hope lies within those texts. Finally, a fourth possibility we might glean from this story is that participating in hope requires proclamation. Now, we don't see this with Elizabeth and Mary, but we do see it with Zechariah. In verses 57 through 66, the text says, Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown his great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to name him Zechariah after his father. But his mother said, no, he is to be called John. They said to her, none of your relatives has this name. And then they began to motion to his father to find out what name he wanted to give him. And he asked for a writing tablet, probably uh, gestured for one, and he wrote, his name is John. And all of them were amazed. Immediately, his mouth was opened and his tongue freed, and he began to speak, praising God. Fear came over all their neighbors, and all these things were talked about throughout the entire hill country of Judea. And all who heard them pondered them and said, What then will this child become? For indeed, the hand of the Lord was with him. Now, in our second Advent episode, I argued that years of living with a sense of hopelessness was what was, what was behind Zechariah's doubt of God's promise. And therefore, I don't believe God muting Zechariah's ability to speak was a punishment, but that it was a kind of a gift, a prolonged silence to allow Zechariah the time to ponder and pray and learn to hope in God again. And for nine months now, Zechariah has waited silently at his home in the hill country for Elizabeth to give birth. And when that day finally came, her neighbors and relatives, who by now have heard of her situation, and they are rejoicing with her and celebrating God's great mercy upon her. And later at the child's circumcision, they were going to name the child after his father, but Elizabeth objected, telling everyone that his name is going to be John. But since that name wasn't a part of the family line, and the neighbors were understandably focused on preserving Zachariah's family line, they asked Zachariah his decision, and he took a tablet and he wrote, his name is John. And after nine months of silent waiting, pondering, praying, contemplating, and learning to, uh, to again hope in the Lord, Zachariah's perspective is now finally aligned with what God is doing. And by writing the child's name on the tablet, which was like Zechariah's confession of faith, his tongue was set loose. And filled with the Holy Spirit, 
and finally able to speak, Zechariah's first words in nine months are a prophetic proclamation of the wisdom and workings of God. And in verses 68 through 74, he proclaimed, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has looked favorably on his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a mighty Savior for us in the house of his child David. As he spoke through the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we would be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, thus he has shown the mercy promised to our ancestors and has remembered his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our ancestor Abraham to grant us that we, being rescued from the hands of our enemies, might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness in his presence all our days. Zechariah's words here are kind of similar to Mary's. He is recalling and reciting the story and promises of God's salvation to Israel. And holding his son and seeing him through God's hope-infusing eyes, Zechariah continues in verse 76, And you, child, you will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways to give his people knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, the dawn from on high will break upon us to shine upon those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Participating in the hope God wants you to experience requires us to talk about the hope God is giving. For nine months, Zechariah has silently pondered and prayed over this child God had gifted to him and Elizabeth. And now that this child is here, and now that Zechariah's heart is undoubtedly aligned with what God is intending to do through this child, Zechariah can now turn his mind and heart to the future that God is shaping and proclaim without doubt that his child is going to give his people the knowledge they need to return to the Lord. His child is going to prepare the way of the Lord. Zechariah is remembering God's salvation in the past while holding his child who will help bring Israel's hopeless present into the hope-filled world of God's salvation future. That is a hope that he cannot hold back. That is a hope that he has to proclaim. And when we allow ourselves to sit with God's gospel and let it form its truth in us, a hope will take shape in us that will explode into joy when we allow ourselves to proclaim it to those around us. Now, as we conclude this episode for the day, I want to briefly go back to Mary's Magnificat real quick. And there she says, My soul 
magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Now, I'm sure that you've heard or made, or used the uh, the phrase, praise God, or praise the Lord, at different points in your life. And I was thinking the other day that the grammar of that statement is actually an imperative, meaning that in and of itself, the statement is instructing someone else to praise God, or like we're instructing someone else to offer praise on our behalf. I think Mary's line here may offer a offer us a more edifying example for expressing our praise of God. She takes ownership for her praise of God. She doesn't hide behind she do, she doesn't hide her praise behind grammar that protects her from looking too emotional. Mary asserts her joy in worship. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. There's just an audacity and boldness to that kind of faith assertion. And it that just seems to land as something much more genuine and impactful. And my point is that if you are in need of hopefulness this season, hopefulness already exists, and hopefulness is already being held out to you in the gospel. And you receive it by boldly participating in it. In some of the ways I've already discussed, get yourself to places that possess hopefulness. Share yourself with people who share hopefulness. Immerse your mind into the gospel stories to receive their God-shaped perceptions and perspectives of hope. Let your mind give voice to the hope God is shaping in you. Participating in hope, participating in God's hope, makes God's hope a part of you. So I thank you for joining me here today on the Wayward Podcast. I encourage you to learn to live life on the way of God's Word. Mm-hmm.